Hello and welcome to episode 210 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, Chris Weston and Larry Allman. Welcome back everybody to episode 210, as Matt just said, of the podcast and Tonight we have a guest, which is always great to have a, to have a guest on the, on the podcast. But uh, first of all, before we get there, I'm going to actually have to find out, Matt, how your week's been, because um, it's been an interesting one, right? I have had... It's been a fascinating week, actually. The The high point was... Well, there have been a few high points, actually. I, I went to, as I trailed last week, I was the, a VIP guest at the 30th UK Student Radio Awards. And I wasn't the oldest person in the room. It was a very glamorous room. It was the Indigo, which is a, a music venue inside the what we old folk call the Millennium Dome, the O2 Centre in uh, East London. It was incredibly glamorous. There were people from all sorts of important jobs in the actual radio industry. And it was a very, very different experience to the very first Student Radio Awards, which I organised back in 1991, which was in a very cold, very damp Hull Students' Union and had neither glitz nor glamour. So that was good. And it was a very, it was a reaffirming thing because it's so nice to be invited. And it's made me remember how much I like the media as an industry. It's completely, completely superficial, completely up itself. But I do miss it in comparison to some of the other industries that I've worked in. If I compare it with, say, I don't know, law firms or something, the media's a lot more fun. So that was good. I had some strange experiences with social networks over the last few days with a post that I put on LinkedIn that went a bit weird and was a, a real illustration of how some of the algorithms involved in social networks end up polarising people horrendously. I wrote my blog about that earlier today, so I'm going to find out more about that go there. And then at the weekend, it was one of my dear friends from school's 50th birthday, so we all trooped down to Brighton and pretended to be in our 20s again which was fine probably until about Sunday morning when it all started to catch up with all of us. I think but it was very nice to see lots of people I haven't seen for a while and many people I've known for in excess of 30 years, which is by rights in itself quite a scary concept. So it's been a good week. Oh, I'm really glad to hear it. OK, well, we do have a guest this week. So Larry Ullman from uh, Cybexa, who's joining us all the way from Estonia. And uh, so, Larry, how has your week been? Has it been an interesting one for you? Oh, sure. First of all, Chris, Matt, uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be with you. It's been a quite interesting, interesting week for us as well. My highlight certainly was hosting and moderating a cybersecurity exercise for a group of auditors around the world. We had, I think, 100 auditors from all time zones, and we ran a decision-making simulation, and we were trying to see if by auditing procedures, one could contribute to avoiding ransomware attack. And as we run the simulation, I start getting news from an actual ransomware attack that is going to, you know, evolve in Estonia uh, against the company that is using basically the same scenario that we are we are currently running. It was one of the one of those bizarre moments that you actually see, you know, a hypothetical scenario that we have written for an event unfold in reality with a, a level of detail that was was just astonishing so one of the one of the things that we had written in was uh, about uh, log mismanagement we said that you know if you if you want to if you try to go back and uh, and uh, and try to determine where the attack was, was coming from the logs were not there in our scenario so 
the news bullets are coming in, which was in the company, the log management was not there. And they, they, I mean, it was just bizarre. And and, um, and week after week, this is this is really what what I feel about uh, what is going on in the world is that um, well, my job is to to write scenarios for our clients. A couple of uh, couple of years ago, when we came up with scenario, our clients would usually say that this is too much, not probable. I mean, ransomware against the hospital, not going to happen. Now we are lucky if events happen in parallel. But usually what we have had, we had colonial pipeline event over a weekend. I had submitted a scenario for a client on Friday, and it was exactly, again, as it happened over the weekend, we had exercise on Monday. So, I mean, had they waited a couple of days, we, we could have been geniuses. But now we're just copycats. <laughs> But yeah, well, it, it it was a great week in in a sense that at least the event was unfolding as we were running the exercise, so it wasn't too bad. Do you fear that you're going to get to a point where you can't be outrageous enough in your planning so that, that actually you you go beyond the stretch of your imagination to work out I, the terrible? I fear for my job. My job is <laughs> storytelling officer, and uh, I, this is my constant fear. This is what I what I what I find the most difficult to actually go and come up with a scenario that is outrageous enough that, uh, that, that, that surprises our clients. So, uh, by the way, one of the things that we have now uh, decided to do is to, to, to take our scenarios 10 years ahead and play through some of the unthinkable events like, you know, quantum event happening, climate change, several other um, cryptocurrency taking over and then determining the whole value of, of the economy. So, so those, those, well, that, there is still stuff in the world that, that we can play around in our scenarios, but it's getting more and more difficult. That's fascinating. Chris, how's your week been? Have you uh, managed to escape out of your... Well, it hasn't been office? as exciting as, uh, as your week, uh, gallivanting about to all, all hours of the evening with various people, and it, it certainly hasn't been as interesting as, uh, as Larry and his, uh, his immediately emergent scenarios. But... Uh, I, it's been a, it's been a good week in as much as uh, there's plenty going on with uh, clients and been pulling together quite a lot of information around uh, a lot of the sort of, sort of different common issues that are going on around value of IT and hybrid working and remote working all the things we normally talk about but I've also been reading just coming to the end of a book called Real Fake which is one of our guests from maybe maybe last year I think Menno. Men of Andun was on was on, and remember if we were talking then about synthetic, it, it, the the point it, at that point he was talking about a synthetic human. This kind of idea that what we see now we have to put through various filters to figure out whether it's real or not, and so much more of that has happened. And this book that uh, Menno and a few others have contributed to have essentially pulling on that idea. So that was quite an interesting book, and so I'll, I'll maybe talk about it next week or the week or in future weeks but it's but i i think it, it chimes with a little bit what larry just said because what we're having to cope with and what we're having to discern and figure out you know how to cope with is is changing so quickly in the in the field of you know what is real when you think about video evidence going before courts and things like that i mean i can't if, if you were writing a scenario where where video evidence was challenged because who could say whether it was you know uh, bona fide or whether it was whether it was invented that's going to happen like really soon right in 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 courts and probably has happened somewhere around the world in different courts 
and and in terms of you know the scenarios we can write and the things we can imagine we're going to have to get our thinking caps on pretty pretty quick for most of these these things so yeah yeah an interesting week in that in that regard it's been the the news that Microsoft put out maybe last week about how they're going to allow avatars to be created within Microsoft Teams. And I remember writing something about three years ago when the uh, ability to blur your background came in. And I wrote this, I don't often do satire, but I wrote this satirical piece that basically talked about new functionality called meetingme.io. And it enabled you to be able to, rather than having to present yourself in a meeting, you could present whoever else you wanted to be. But you could also do the same with the audience you were talking to. So you know that old thing about public speaking, if you want to be able to have confidence in public speaking, you imagine everybody naked. But with meeting me, you no longer have to imagine it. You can actually make them naked with the press of a button. And of course, now they're basically, they're on the edge of introducing all this nonsense. And there's this boundary between where we are with reality and it's, it's it's the stuff that Baudrillard, the French philosopher, talked about in, in terms of hyper-reality, where we're unable to distinguish between the real and the, the fictitious, and actually where it starts to then not matter. And I, I'm, I'm actually pretty convinced now that we're there already. People, you know, Zuckerberg talking about the metaverse and all that, I think it's been like this for years. And with things like brands, which are completely unreal things that we've bought into and have value and sell and buy. And, and it's just the digital things, just putting an extra layer on top of it. But but we should be campaigning against bloody avatars in teams. It's a, it's a slippery slope to not knowing what is going oh, on. I don't know frankly. what's going on most of the time now. I'd, it's, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a big stretch for me. <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk in uh, quite some depth this week about the, the state of the cyber security world, which is why we've got uh, Larry with us. So uh, I think we should probably crack on. Earlier in the summer, we were joined by Alex Wolfson, who is a defence and security writer and consultant and academic. And I, I, I mean, many of the conversations we have on the show, I find fascinating and informative and, and quite a lot of them. They tend to be kind of pivotal moments in my thinking about things. And the thing particularly that, that Alex talks about is that it's a bit of a, a misconception to think of cyber warfare as something different from warfare warfare. And that in the West, we tend to think that we're not at war at the moment. It's just there are these cyber things and that the warfare part is a metaphor. But somehow it's different because it doesn't involve big blokes with shooty things. And that Alex's view of the world is that the, the nations of particularly Russia, China, North Korea actually consider themselves at war and the theatre of war at the moment is the world of cybersecurity, is the world of destabilisation of political structures through things like social networks and so on and so on. And that's a bit of a scary world. It might well be the reality of the world. So we're going to talk, get into into some of that stuff a bit more this week with you, Lowry. It'd be useful, I think, for, for the listener to know just a little bit more about how you've got to be running or in in your role sorry as in uh, as a chief storyteller isn't it at cybexa so how did you get to where you are today well it, it's actually good to reference back to alex's podcast episode because he was mentioning estonia cyber attacks uh, from 2007 as uh, as one of the reference points really for our understanding 
today of of this defense side or, or state state sponsored uh, side of cybersecurity. And uh, so frankly, I was I was in the middle of it. I, at, at that time, I served as permanent secretary of defense. I had I was the most senior member of of Estonia's crisis committee from Ministry of Defense, which is a slight equivalent to British Cobra system. We we have roughly the same government system and the permanent secretary is also is roughly the same position although permanent means five years in, in Estonia fortunate <laughs> and, and and the moment I realized that I'm in cybersecurity now I came from that night when those attacks started I was in the situation room which was in the police headquarters and I was holding up this old cell phone because nobody had smartphones at that time and I was sending uh, an SMS to encrypted, encrypted SMS to my Minister of Defense, who was sleeping because it was 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. as those things should normally happen. And I said, sir, I believe we are on cyber, under cyber attack, and I pushed send button. And then after I had done that, I thought that, you know, would he believe me? Or maybe he would think I'm drunk or something. And and then, uh, and that's how the how the whole cyber, cyber story started for me. Of course, we had been involved in cybersecurity a lot uh, longer already by that time in 2004, our, our country made a proposal to NATO to start the NATO Cybersecurity Center of Excellence in Estonia. And I just for this meeting, I, I went through for, for my notebook uh, from the very first briefing on on that topic that that we had, and it was given by our our military representative General Kert, who unfortunately passed away, but but whose idea was to set up something like this, and he had just done a tour of all the military representatives in NATO in 2004, and then he reported back not a single military representative or, or representation thought cybersecurity as part of their toolbox or being remotely relevant at that time. So that was 2004. Then came 2007 with this um, now probably safe to say Russia connective attack, which was sort of wake up call because we made uh, um, uh, a decision to talk about it. I mean, several other countries have suffered from attacks, but what was different in Estonia's case was we just started talking about it to everybody. We unclassified roughly 99.9% of the material. We we made it completely available to international community. And, and I think the reason why I'm here, just to make this long story uh, very short, <laughs> is is in that in that moment, because we started to talk about it. And then, of course, after uh, civil service, I, I decided to, to stay in cybersecurity. And, uh, and after some years, we, we founded a company called Cybercert Technologies. And, and I'm happy to, to work on those topics today as well. Yeah. So just as a little aside, Estonia is, it seems from the outside, very pioneering in a number of areas when it comes to technology and digital. But what... What's driving that in, in the country? It's a good question. I mean, there are various various drivers. I was just speaking to Irish Cyber um, uh, 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 CISO Forum, I think it was, uh, and, and one of one of the questions was, uh, how come Estonia started to to invest to cybersecurity that far, and, and how did we get funding and so on? And the implication being that we're so rich. I think one of the driving reasons why we started digital transformation is that we were poor. We just didn't have money to sustain all that bureaucracy that is analog. Uh, 
So uh, and the, the second uh, reason why we prefer digital is that uh, that we are vehemently uh, against corruption and, and all that stuff, and, and computer cannot ask you a bribe. So so that's 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 really really good. So. Um, it's, it a little bit takes us back to the discussion on avatars and Microsoft. So there are uh, the Microsoft Teams. There are there are, there may be moments when avatar is actually better. So uh, because there's this uh, famous discussion about super intelligence, right? When when the discussion hypothetical discussion is who if if the super intelligence materializes, who are we going to uh, you know decide with guard over it? And it certainly cannot be human because humans cannot be bribed very easily, and super intelligence would figure out immediately how to do that. So some sort of avatar would actually be in, in place. But but yeah, I think being poor, being strongly anti-corrupt and, and then just open to innovation this this is the formula that, that takes us there that's interesting that might be where uh, the uk's digital endeavors may be slightly coming off the rails i'm not sure which one of those <laughs> factors it is whether it's the the poverty missing or the inability to be corrupted that's another contemporary story for us so uh, from, from your viewpoint then it sounds and again coming through from the the traditions of defence and security rather than from the traditions of, of information technology, you'd concur with what Alex was talking about in terms of this sort of state of warfare that we're I in would, at the moment? I would, and I would, but I would turn it a little bit or, or sort of look at it from a little bit different angle and, and say that I think we in Europe, and I use it in the widest possible sense, the we in the Western part of the of the of this continent i i think we are putting too much of an emphasis into definitions for example we we run these exercises for for european governments and and we we do it also one of the methods that we do is we we take small injects and and escalate a situation and then we ask a group of officials what that is and every single time and we have run about 100 simulations across all european countries every single we have not had a, a single time when we have had an agreement. So every single time we get the disagreement. And then we are focused on that, why we disagreed, what that is. Russia is not concerned about that. I mean, it's not about, I, I think they, yes, there is a very modern military doctrine that they have cultivated extremely successfully, but I think they're not too worried about how to define what they're doing. They are just doing. I mean, Russia... I mean, they're not—they're not concerned about defining even their own borders. I think it's a not so well-known fact, but Russia does not have a border agreement with a single country that is bordering them, and that's—I mean—that's how much they don't—they just don't care. So, and and I think we on the other side care too much about definitions. That that's where we get stuck. So, what what we're up against? We are up against against the. An extremely well-oiled bureaucratic machine who has extremely good decision-making capability, asymmetrically good decision-making capability. You have a very innovative leader who must be extremely good boss because if you look at the failures that uh, the intelligence agencies have, so I mean, spectacularly displayed also also in UK, if you, if you remember Salisbury, then in any other bureaucracy, you would have investigations, you would have you know those people fired, you would have a lessons learned process and all whatnot. Then those people turn up in another country and 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 and, and get them, get another into another failure. So 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 what you have is is this extremely 
asymmetric decision-making that goes against our very Byzantine decision-making process. And, and, and I think in addition to technical capability, I think that's where part of our trouble lies. And sometimes I think we may be too worried about what is how to define where we are. And, and then we spend our energy, energy and efforts into, into figuring out, is it war? Is it Article 5? Is it Article 4? Exactly what is going on right now at the Polish border. I mean, half of the discussion is what that is. Well, who cares? I mean, there are people coming across the border. Somebody has to do something. It, there's, it's obviously a, a, a very good decision-making mechanism behind all that. We should try to figure out how to counter it but somehow so that we wouldn't get too stuck into decision-making, uh, into, into defining, you know, this, these regimes. I understand yeah. it's an important component yeah, that, of democracy. That, that's partly, yeah. that's, it's about, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Once you're into I, it, then, you, actually the decision to, to get out or to change what you're doing, that requires a whole bunch of, you know, you, that's part of our decision-making process, which is, which is part of the cost of getting involved, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the, that's the cost that doesn't exist on the other side, I guess. It doesn't, and 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 I think the the right or, or sort of green light to to be involved in all sorts of operations has been delegated to a very low level. So, so for example, another thing that we ask in our simulations in in, in exercises is the level of authority. Who has the right to take a decision? And invariably. Invariably, in every moment, if the situation gets more and more difficult, that requires actually more and more faster and asymmetric reaction. In our systems, decisions are being uh, pushed very high up, and 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 then we end up in in a situations that require very fast decision making, where we actually cannot figure out how to communicate because of the limitations on transparency. Because automatically, when you have those tough situations, then there's this also additional instinct to classify everything. And then you get this, end up with a, a bunch of classified information, both in corporate world as well, and, and also in the government sector. Mm. Then you have an enormous requirement for international coordination. And then you push the decision to a very, very high end. So you have a cabinet level decision, in 30 minutes at top secret level, coordinated with the whole international community, which is an impossibility, and we get stuck, and we cannot talk about real capabilities. But but I don't want to be so 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 I, I don't want to sound and or, or so too alarmist about it as well. This is just how we just need to figure it out, and and we actually have been very successful in in, in polishing our bureaucracies and then oiling our our wheels of uh, bureaucracy. And another problem that we now see is that we have actually achieved some some results after those investments that we have made into security, and and now we don't know how to deal with our success. We have had investments into security agencies. We have had investments into, into certain capabilities. Now we have a lot of information. But there are very few countries who actually know what to do about that. So, so that's another problem that we see now. Do you think we've learned, it's a slightly broader realm, but do you think we've learned from the pandemic about decision-making? There's certainly conversations I've been having with peers in my sector is, well, we've had this 18 months where we just got stuff done. Why aren't we like that usually? And I wonder if there's something that we actually can take from the, the craziness I of the last two can. years. And I think we can. I think lesson number one is that, that crazy stuff, crazy, impossible 
bad stuff can happen and it can happen very fast. If we think ourselves back to November 2019, what we were doing, what we were planning, what vacations we were about to take, I mean, the simple questions, then I think it was something very, very different. When we sent our company back home in February 2020, I said, you know, it's just a pandemic probably will be over in three weeks. Uh, no. And I think lesson number two is how are we going to learn how to live with it? So, and, and for example, if we take the, the example of the Irish National Health Service ransomware attack, there have been some voices in Ireland who say that, you know, maybe we're doing this digital transformation too fast. Maybe we have gone too far uh, because we see those cyber attacks happening. And I think the parallel to cybersecurity with COVID is, is the, the, also the fact that we need to learn how to live with it. Cyber attacks are going to be part of the reality. We need to figure out it, it's, it, how to live with them. It is just another side of the coin of digital transformation. We cannot stop digital transformation. This is another thing. We, those who call, and, and I mean, it can be a popular, even populist, you know, call to, to arm or, or action or back to Middle Ages. We can't do it because it's a technological trend. It's a mega trend that we, it, it's not up for us to decide. Mm. I think people need to realize that digital transformation is going to happen whatever one or another government is going to decide. It is not a governmental decision if we're doing digital transformation. The thing is, if our governments are not doing it, if our companies are, are not doing it, it is the same, it, 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 it's the other guys with this excellent asymmetric decision-making mechanism who are going to do it. And then we are reliant on their systems, on their infrastructure. I think 5G is a great example of, of how, how technology from the other side has actually advanced pretty well. I think what we see with Huawei and the, and the, the, the expansion of, of their technological infrastructure across the Western world, I, I think we are, we, are, we are seeing that. So uh, that's digital transformation. It's going to happen no matter what we decide. And, and if, if that side is going to increase our attacks and if they see that it works and, and calls to halt digital transformation are going to go louder and louder because of those attacks, what happens, they're just going to increase those attacks because they control it. So uh, I, think, I think these are the lessons. So what are, what are the things that, you know, how, how do we think about this in terms of, given that we, we think about these things in terms of risk and cost and... You know what are we going to stake on the table now in order to in order to maybe get this advantage or mitigate this risk later on? That seems to me we, we always seem to be behind the eight ball in that we always seem to be well. You know, every, and every every organisation that I've ever worked in has always been more accepting of risk, maybe because the risk isn't well understood, and I think. That's often a problem where where security, you know, cybersecurity, information security people will go to a board of directors in a company and go, okay, we need to invest in X and Y because the risk of of Z will happen, and they go away from the meeting feeling that 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 risk has been accepted because they haven't got the money, but actually the risk wasn't properly understood that that they haven't been able to articulate that risk well enough. Maybe they haven't been able to tell the story, you know, the uh, the way that you would tell a story, you know, maybe they haven't been able to to take them through that 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 piece but the question i i guess i always come back to is it's very hard to get people to 
to spend money on a risk that hasn't yet crystallized. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't still do that. But maybe we should be it's, just more aware of of what the what the the pro- proper responses are. But you know, that's 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 the question, really. It's a very very good and difficult question. I would approach it in the following ways. Number one, what every board listens to is the bottom line of money. So so we need to figure how do we bring the cybersecurity narrative into the whole value of the company narrative. And, uh, and there are simple ways to do it. And I think one answer lies within insurance and liability insurance. And I think there are already good insurance products and cybersecurity, but because, again, for the very reason that we do not understand well the cyber risk, some of them are not still working very well. But if, for example, a company liability insurance is going to be dependent on certain cybersecurity controls, tests, completion of the exercises, and if we get that out into the market in a really measurable way, and if the insurance premium for the board is going to go down for that, 30% 30% if you have if you have uh, reached a certain level of, of controls, that's going to get the board's attention. Another thing is clients. I mean, I think with the raising awareness of, of uh, in cybersecurity with common people, I think with, with more and more people having somebody in their circle of friends or acquaintances who has experienced ransomware attack, I think customers are, are going to very soon ask that question. Uh, are your products safe? Is it, uh, is it safe to use uh, um, this service or not? And, and, and that's why I think through security, we can also grow customers uh, on ourselves. And, and then there are little, simple things. I mean, we can be very, very theoretical about certain risk. I mean, human risk is, is very hard to measure. There are certain ways we, we, we try to do it also in our company. The, some of, there are some of those unknown unknowns that, that, that might happen, the COVID type of things. Although I have read a book from 1998 who said that in, in about 10 years, something like that is going to happen. But let's, let's take simple things like ransomware. I do not understand if, if somebody is running a company who has anything in internet. A, a customer service portal or, 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 or some sort of data and they haven't planned for a ransomware event, then I don't know. I mean, I mean, this is malpractice already. For example, we are having some of the discussions now after all those attacks, the horrible attacks against the ransomware attacks against hospitals. We have uh, UK 2017, we have Irish attack, we have Finnish, we have German. Now, recently, we have Newfoundland hospitals. So a question has been legitimately proposed by litigation lawyers. If you haven't taken measures against ransomware, maybe that's medical malpractice. I'm not a big fan of the type of American, you know, litigation. However, this is something that is driving, has been driving the markets, the consumer protection for a long time. So, so maybe it is, I mean, it's a fair question now. If all those attacks are happening against hospitals, and if somebody's going to die because of somebody hasn't backed up their database or, or hasn't the proper load management system or hasn't run a, a proper cyber range exercise, Maybe that's medical malpractice now. Yeah, some interesting challenges in in, in health, in science. Uh, I live just down the road from the UK's National Physical Laboratory, which is the mm-hmm. 
They are, they're, they're the home of measurement, I think they call themselves. They just measure stuff obsessively. But they've got loads of specialist equipment in there that relies mm. on old PCs with old operating systems. And and I, I think healthcare is similar. There's often you've got control systems that are basically just old PCs that are still there and they're never really patched because they're just seen as part of the medical appliance rather than as the you know an IT asset. And those kind of things, you know, cause an immense problem to be able to manage. But and in that context, if you've allowed your medical appliance to no longer function properly, well, that would be medical yeah. malpractice. If you use a blunt scalpel, it is medical malpractice. So I can definitely see how that goes. So the work that you do now is about being able to create stories to enable simulations to allow groups of people to be able to experience what it yes. might be like to go through some sort of. Yes major incident that on the on the face of it for me sounds like it's an exercise in management leadership communication and not really very much to do with the technology part of it that's almost incidental and you could be dealing with a rail disaster or a you know an earthquake or, or whatever else how how much of it is about people and, and people interaction as opposed to about the mechanics of the actually we, the we go very deep into technology and uh, and our cyber range, when we run a cyber range exercise, then an ideal format would be to to run an exercise together with management and 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 the technical team, because one of our missions, one of the core missions that 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 we have in our company is to is to build that interface between management, IT, and cybersecurity teams. Because very often, I mean, we have been talking to the clients. I mean, after Microsoft Exchange event, true story. One of the clients came to us. We asked, why did you not tell to the management after they have lost a number of passwords and, uh, and sensitive data? They said, we just didn't dare to go to tell them. And, uh, and, and this is really, really to teach that in, in, in this world today, in cybersecurity, there are no bad news. We just need to start talking to each other. So what we do is we emulate actual environments we have very good automation we have good library we have good visualization which is part of the storytelling and we actually have cybersecurity teams going through real cyber attacks and, and very often we have boards sitting next uh, next room and, and and taking decisions sometimes the technical exercise takes two days it can take three days board exercises in parallel they go on a different timeline so they take a shorter time two three hours but but you can learn fascinating stuff there first the boards can can understand how the, the company network is built up at the same time, IT personnel or cybersecurity personnel can say, how do I phrase a certain incident to get the attention? So we have, and, and why these exercises are, are useful, I have one, one excellent story. So we have a, 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 an incident in an organization that we simulated. Our red team breached the security perimeter of, of an organization. Their, their services were compromised. So the team goes to the the board asking the question, do I take the services down? The board said, sure. And now, if that was a simple tabletop, the story would have ended there. But what happened in an actual cyber range exercise was the following. Our red team, as they were speaking to each other and, and deciding the matter, had escalated their privileges already so high that they were now in control of that service. So when the admins went to take down the service, they were kicked out and the faulty service, which was a critical, important service, was just running. So what do you do now? And, you know, experiences like that 
give boards a real value of, of what does it mean to, to actually be part of this real cyber attacks. And, and, and it, this, the events can really take you as, as they evolve. We normally, we try to control our campaigns and we have the, the ability to do that very well, but, but there are always moments of surprise and, and this reality, you know, the experience of real life experience that that's what, what is, what is really valuable. What what comes out of the other end of it? I'm fascinated to know as as you know the board and the technical staff of a company go through one of these exercises. What are the sorts of things that you see coming out the end? I, I've worked for uh, a few years in management and leadership training back in my mid thirties, and people would be really infused after a training event. They'd come out with ideas. They'd come out with, and then they'd get back to their jobs, and it all just disappear nothing would seem to change at all does the the simulation method help to actually yes, take I, I think uh, i think what we are looking for from the management is just um, first of all a lot of people really and i wouldn't underestimate that they are getting good ideas out of those trainings and, uh, and just good ideas how to how to do their everyday job now, our, another principle that we have on the technical side of the exercises is train as you fight. So, uh, for instance, uh, we do not build our networks or, or, or systems in a way that are unfamiliar to the team. So, if you have a, if you have a, enough money to have you know, Splunk or Palo Alto Firewall, we put Splunk or Palo Alto Firewall in the range. And, and then you are actually able to, I don't know if I'm allowed to say brand names, but feel free to cut them out. But, uh, uh, or, or, or beep, but That's fine, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we, we are uh... okay, okay. Only if you say Oracle, I'll beep Oracle but, out. Uh, <laughs> but so we do this train as you fight the concept, so people again actually learn how to configure some of their tools, and because this is this is the problem today that they have these fascinating tools, but they just don't know how to use them, and and. Uh, and, and that's the second biggest value. And, and the third really is this integration of ability to communicate, ability to understand what is important to, 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 to communicate out of the, of the crisis and how to work together as a team, how to lead teams. No, I think it still, it still stands. I mean, this good exercise is, uh, is always a, uh, a, a valuable experience. We can, can go back to the beginning of the podcast and, and, and and talk about this firefighting. And we have the saying, actually, it's really interesting, is that uh, they say that if IT personnel or if cybersecurity personnel has to get into the firefighting mode, then the management has something uh, has done something wrong. It's the management's problem. So uh, so we just uh, want to show... And about the tools then, just, just briefly about the tools that we see coming into this domain now, because one of the issues that we've had, certainly in the last few years, networks have got extremely, extremely complex. Our environments have become extremely complex. We've got, we've, we've got proliferations of devices. I mean, good knows, good, how many knows, how many IoT devices and whatnot we, we have connected to our networks. And we have networks that are bridged now to other networks because we have people working in remote locations. And we have a great deal of log information. We're, and frankly, there's just too much, right? There's, there's too much information. No matter, even if you've got good tools like Splunk, etc., managing logs is almost it's almost impossible because because you cannot possibly ingest all this information and deal with it. But there are tools now, of course, the the, the machine learning tools, the AI tools, which can deal with this data. So, do you see this as a as a genuinely important tool set now? 
or is it a is it just have we just extend, extended our reach just a little bit or is is the AI tool set really important it is it is it is very important and, and some of the tools that we see and some of the tools especially in log management that we are also involved ourselves I think they are they can be very very valuable so I think we need to continue research and and and, and use of those and and also an important aspect is getting the cost down of those tools because one of the reasons why these tools are not used very efficiently is, is just the fact or, or widely in is, is that they're just very expensive the vulnerability visualization tools for example we have all those vulnerability scanners that give you pages and pages and pages of information so what do you do with this visualization is is one of the things so we are very very keen on on actually presenting an understandable visualized picture of, of, of what you see because again some of those things and again we 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 need to realize that they are, I think somebody said that the vulnerability management, for example, it's not a, a linear process. It is a form of art. And, and, uh, and how to do that, we need to have a good visual uh, tools to, to understand that. And so, again, we have done a lot of research on that. And again, I don't want to plug in the cyber range too much into it, but again, this is one function for the cyber engines as well, just to build up your environments, build up your digital twins, and then try out uh, some of the tools in, 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 in those what environments about... and, uh, and, and before they get to production. OT, uh, well, and, and OT is a big trouble that, that we are into. I mean, everybody's worried about that. That was mentioned as well, I think, before by Matt, uh, which is that... Uh, I mean, everybody worried about the quantum effect, but if you look at the state of OT in some of the some of the places, I think the quantum effect is here. If somebody really wanted to, but what about in terms uh, of automation of, of of this? Because some of what you're talking about is is visualization, which is very important, and prioritization. And but we're always again presenting to a human to make a decision. Whereas this kind of asymmetric world that you're talking about, where where the decisions and the attacks are being happening happening more fluidly. How can we do that more in our own environment? So actually the decisions are being made, made by the rules that we set or the rules that are being learned using the tools that we've got rather than being keep bringing them back to a person because that's always going to be the, the delay, isn't it? That's true. And, uh, and um, AI is, 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 is definitely an area where we have to, where we have to take decisions and, and again make investments because if you look at the recent Microsoft Exchange event, I mean, where the attacks were automated by AI as they started to. I mean, the first ones that got there, they were good. And then you have this notification from Dutch company, we have a, we have a vulnerability. Microsoft issues the patch, and then you have a massive AI a reverse engineered attack, and that, that's how that's how the I mean, that's how the damage was done. So absolutely, we we just have to do something to counter that. It's so messy. No, I I know there's a. I, a I wish I could say I, I, I knew the answer too, here. but I, it just but, seems to me yeah. that it's got to be a, are, it's got to be part of the solution. <laughs> they, they say that every perfect cybersecurity presentation should include <laughs> blockchain, we AI, and, blockchain. And, uh, and, and machine learning. But but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think blockchain has a, has a lot to offer when we when we have a question what is real and, and what isn't, and I think that technology has important role to play in bringing us back to reality. So that might be a solution. Uh, if you look at the supply chain security um, stuff like this, could be an application there. 
But, but yeah, I think it all sounds kind of hollow right now. But I think we just need to to do to put more substance behind it. So it it does feel, and I, I'm cyber is something that keeps me awake at night, and increasingly so as I get more understanding of, of how it works. And there's a risk there that, particularly for people who aren't immediately in the cyber work, cyber security world, they'll just turn off because it goes into the too scary, too big. Just please take it away. Don't 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 let me have to think about this category. And there's lots of things that fall into that category. And there's a lot of business leaders who end up just having these massive blind spots because it's what do, what do we do? How do we make this so that it is? critical enough but so not so overwhelmingly terrifying that people turn off from it i think there are the ways to approach it and and we have we have we have seen it working in our practice is is to start the conversation to to find a way of of exercising to, to demystifying the topic i i think it, it shouldn't be a, a process of of humiliation or, or sort of stress testing, but but I think trying to find good answers and then then cybersecurity starts to get into our business models. I, I think it's bound to. We need to, but I think one thing that we we we, we don't have luxury of is is not dealing with it. And I think we, we just need to calmly accept the fact that cybersecurity problems are going to be with us as the digital transformation is going on and the digital transformation is going to go on. Now, it is our choice if we want to control it or not, but 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 that's about it. Uh, it's, um, I think in the Lord of the Flies, there is a, is a, is a moment where Piggy was crying. I think it's the end and and the passage and, and and say he was crying for the evil in the world. Well, it still is there. The, the cybersecurity has even brought us sort of new quality of evil. Uh, at, and, but but we have to do a lot more than just cry about it and then try to learn how to move on. And I think it also can offer meaningful business opportunities. Thank you for listening to W40. You can find us on the internet at w40podcast.com, on Twitter at W40podcast, and in all good podcasting platforms.